family here. Um, you know, one of the announcements, Jason, thank you for the announcements. Hello to all those online as well. The, um, this home for the holidays thing that we do, we've already had a couple of homes open up that would like to receive guests during this holiday season. So please let us know. You know, nobody should be by themselves alone on any time during the holiday. Um, so please, questions at calvarychapelrva.com or see one of us after the service and we'll get you guys plugged up, plugged up, plugged in. We'll leave that one alone. Yeah, um, you know, this Thanksgiving holiday, the Christmas holiday season, this time of the year, truly my favorite. Um, you know, when, when we lived in California, I would probably say the summer was my favorite because of the weather. Here in Virginia, I can easily say that summer is not my favorite. <laughs> you guys know this because I carry a rag everywhere I go. Jason was talking about frost on the windshield. Thank you, Lord, for the frost on the windshield. <laughs> no, but uh, it is a wonderful time. You know, as Pastor Tim and Sarah and the girls are, are down in Florida this Thanksgiving week, um, you know, thank you. I, I count it a blessing and a, and a privilege and an honor to be able to be here in this place with all of you, and we can read the Word together, we can pray and worship together. And I also, I see a lot of familiar faces in the crowd, those that are home from college, those that are home from the military, welcome, welcome home. Wonderful to have you here with us. And so we will um, look at some things this morning together. Um, but as people are traveling, the Whites and so many others, please pray for Pastor Tim, Sarah, the girls, and everybody else that is traveling this week or maybe has already reached their destination, just uh, pray the Lord's blessing to be upon them and his uh, provision for them and travel mercies for all those that are on the road or flying. The busiest time of the year to travel, so it can be kind of hectic. You know, and for many reasons, and as happy as the holidays is, are for, for most of us, there's some out there that this is the hardest time of the year. This is the a time of the year that people find very depressing for, for many reasons. They suffer from depression more during this time of the year than other parts. You know, this is a season where we see an increase in self-harm, harm to others, and even attempting to take one's life and, and some succeeding. And we're soon going to pray for revival, but when we do pray for revival, let's also pray for all those that are hurting this season, who need the Lord's healing, but true healing. And let's pray that all come to know the hope and the joy and the salvation that we have in the Lord. You know, today being so close to the Thanksgiving holiday, we'll be taking... We'll be talking about a subject that I think fills all of us with a good, great sense of thanksgiving. But it's not what the world offers, because that's not real, and it's not true. 
what I'm talking about is what we receive from God. And that's His mercy and His grace. The title of our message today is, was already there. Wow. <laughs> Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. Um, and that's, uh, the, the, the message is the mercy of God and his grace bestowed. And some people can get confused with what mercy is, what it isn't, what grace is and it isn't. Um, and so today we're going to try to talk about those things and clear some of those things up. So before we do, there we go. Let's take a small amount of time as we do. We're going to spend some time on our knees in prayer. We're going to pray for revival for our nation. We'll pray for the nation of Romania. But also as we pray, let's pray for all those that are hurting this morning and will be during this season. So take a little bit of, a little bit of time, get on our knees. I'll pop back up and we'll pray and we'll get going. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we gather here this morning, we are in awe of you. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your love and your grace. We thank you for the hope that is you. We thank you, Lord, for this beautiful relationship we have through the blood of Christ with our Heavenly Father. And though we gather together this morning just with a heart of thanksgiving. And so, Lord, we humbly come before you this morning to pray for our persecuted brothers and sisters. Lord, we pray for all those that are persecuted for their love for you. We pray, Lord, that you would give them a reprieve during this season. You would give them rest. And, Lord, that through the actions of others, Lord, those that persecute would be drawn to you. Lord, that you would open their eyes and their hearts to allow them to see that what they do is, is wrong. And Lord, that through the pain and the suffering that takes place, Lord, people will come to know you as Lord and Savior. We pray for revival for our nation. We pray for our 
the leaders of our nation, our local leaders. We pray for those that oversee the institutions within the United States. And we pray, Lord, that you would fill each of them, Lord. Break their hearts. Lord, that they would cry out to you as Lord and Savior. Your Holy Spirit would fall. We pray for our world, Lord. There's so much pain and suffering going on, even as we speak. Lord, we know what's taking place in the Middle East and Europe. The things that are getting ready in many other parts of the world, Lord. We just pray your hand of protection would remain. And Lord, that one last great revival would take place, that many would be saved, Lord. Many would come home to know you. And so, Lord, we just we pray for these things with a hopeful expectation, Lord. We pray for all of those who are in pain this morning. Those that are hurting, those that are filled with sorrow and hopelessness. Those that feel the, the weight of the world on their shoulders. We pray, Lord, that they would cast these things at your feet and Lord that you would take their burden upon your shoulders they would know that it was you and they would cry out to you Lord for salvation, for surrender and Lord for the healing that needs to take place that only you bring use us Lord, allow us, give us the eyes to see and the heart to come alongside them Lord to see their suffering, and, and share that suffering through prayer. Lord, that we would lift them to you and intercede for our brothers and sisters, Lord, where maybe they're too weak to do it themselves. And Lord, we ask all of these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. I think you may be seated. <clears throat> you know, I, I love... <clears throat> that we um, that we can pray together like this openly, freely, without fear of any persecution. We can drop to our knees where we need to be and just pray. Pray to our heavenly Father because we we don't have the answers. We don't have anything except our heavenly Father. So. I really count this a blessing to be able to pray with you guys. So looking at today, the mercy of God and His grace bestowed. This isn't going to be a long message, and not necessarily one that is catered to an unbeliever compared to a believer. I suppose, though, that this message would be more meaningful in some respects to those who know Christ as Savior. But I do pray that this encourages the church. But also, that the Lord speaks to those, whether you're here or online, who are still weighing the cost. There is a lot to weigh in some respects. But I promise you, and Better yet, who cares about what I say? The Word of God promises you 
that there's really no comparison. And so today I pray that if there's somebody here who doesn't know the Lord as their Savior or watching online, that today is the day they surrender their lives. That they cast off the sin and the weight and just be filled with the Holy Spirit. We're also not going to be looking at just one particular section of Scripture. You know, typical Sunday, we are in the book of Acts. Pastor Tim is, is walking us through the book of Acts, and it's truly a wonderful and blessing time. But um, we're going to be looking at a couple of different areas, both the New Testament and the, the, the Tanakh, the Old Testament. And we're going to be looking at how each of these things speaks of God's mercy and His grace. And so what I thought we would do today is look at a couple of stories about the mercy, or maybe one story about the mercy of God, and then a couple of about the grace of God. And we can look at these things in a little bit more detail, talk about what they are, what they're not, get a better picture of these things. Um, and as we do so, that we can draw closer to the Lord and see Him in His total sacrifice for us. And if we really were to look up all these verses on God's grace and His mercy, we would see an unmeasurable and undeserving look into a love that we can never begin to explain. Because truly what we see in the Bible is beyond what is natural. It's supernatural. And only from our Savior. Grace is mentioned approximately 170 times in the Bible, for those who like numbers. Mercy is mentioned almost 340, and almost two-thirds of that in the Tanakh, which makes sense. Mercy is defined by the Google as compassion or forgiveness shown towards someone whom it is within one's power to punish or harm. In the Bible, mercy is used in reference to giving forgiveness or withholding punishment. The scripture particularly speaks of God's forgiveness as well as the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. The word mercy is also popular in a legal context, such as when a judge shows leniency during sentencing. Judgment. Grace, on the other hand, if you look at the internet, is elegance in movement. Probably not the definition we're looking for. It's also to honor someone by your presence also, not the definition we're looking for. A biblical reference is undeserved favor. But grace is so much more than that. And if you look at these two definitions just as they are, you could say, well, I still don't really see the difference in the two. And I wouldn't disagree. There's definitely a difference, though. And while they're not the same, we see them working together often. So in short, for those that take notes, and even if you don't, mercy is not getting what we deserve. 
And grace is receiving a gift we don't deserve. I'll say it again. Mercy is not getting what we deserve. And grace is receiving a gift we don't deserve. And so if mercy is not getting what we deserve, what do we deserve? Hell. And judgment. That is what we deserve. Very plain and simple. We deserve hell. But mercy tells us that it's not getting what we deserve. So instead of receiving hell and judgment, we receive salvation. And salvation is a gift we don't deserve. How do we know salvation is a gift? Well, Paul, when he was writing the church in Ephesus, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not a result of works that no one may boast. So salvation is a gift from God. And it's a gift we don't deserve. When we read the Bible, we could probably all think of people who experienced the mercy of God or the grace of God. There's many examples of these things. And really, if we look around the room, there's many more in the lives that are here and those that are online if we follow Christ. We get to hear about some of these, mercy, these examples of mercy and grace when we hear the different testimonies of our lives, what the Lord has done for us and in us and through us despite of us. And we could stand here and talk about some of these things, but we need to go back to the Bible and read the examples in the Bible. Because in the Bible, this is the ultimate truth and source. So we can reground and recenter ourselves on what is true. So let's read these things now in the word. And the first we're going to look at is mercy. The example we're going to talk about today can be found in Luke chapter 10. So if you have your Bibles, turn or flip to Luke chapter 10. And we're, we're going to be starting in verse 25. Now, the parable that we're about to read was told by Jesus, as we all know, if we look at the preceding verses, or the previous verses. It was told by Jesus at a time after the 70 were sent out into the world, into the harvest. And when they returned, they were obviously rejoicing for, for various reasons, but Jesus has to correct them because they and we tend to get out of alignment with the things that are truly important. And so Jesus corrects these things. But then Jesus, we find, is rejoicing in the Spirit. And he begins to privately speak. He pulls the, the disciples away and he begins to privately speak with them. And this is where, in verse 25, we begin to read. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? 
And he said, what is written in the law? What is your reading of it? Now, we're not going to break down every verse. We simply wouldn't have time to do so. But isn't it interesting, this response from Jesus? What is written in the law? I don't know if Jesus is asking this sarcastically. As if to say, shouldn't you know, given your position and your title? But this question infers the statement as if to say, are you keeping perfect every law that is written? Do these things manifest themselves in your life? But then Jesus asks a separate question, which leads me to believe that he's not really being sarcastic. He's simply asking a question he already knows an answer to. Because he says, what is your reading of it? Now, understand, we're not under the law. We have God's grace. But this is an interesting statement for Jesus to make. What is your reading of it? As if to say, do you understand what is written in the law? Do you understand it? And what do you think it really means? And is it accurate to what you think to what is actually written? So do you understand the law and the way it was written as truth? And therefore, do you teach the truth? And do you live out the truth in your life? How do you exhibit these things in your life? This question that Jesus holds Many answers about ourself as well. Where are we really in our walk? This question really should really make us pause and think the same thing. When we look at the Bible and we look at what is written in the Word, what is our life compared to what is written in the Word? Do we accurately understand the things that are said? Do people see the fruit of the Spirit in our lives? Is it visible to others? Or do we feel like we have to add some things to what is true? Or you maybe take away some things that we don't really agree with? Or we think are no longer necessary? Are we twisting and manipulating God's Word? Maybe even out of ignorance. And in doing so, where are we really in our walk with Christ? Are we soundly saved? Are we soundly living for Christ and not ourselves? Paul says it this way. Examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourself. Do, not know yourself. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you are disqualified. Peter says it this way. Therefore, brethren be even more diligent to make sure your call and election are sure. For you do these things, you will never stumble. For so, and an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is in reference to our true and fruitful growth in the faith. Just something to keep in mind as we read through these verses 
in this response, in this interaction between Jesus and this individual. Moving back to the reading, the lawyer asking how he inherits eternal life and now is responding to Jesus' statement. So he answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered rightly. Do this, and you will live. But he, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Here's the parable. When Jesus answered and said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves, who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a certain priest came down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by the other side. Likewise, a Levite, when he arrived at the place, came and looked and passed by the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. So he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. On the next day, when he departed, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said to him, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I come again, I will repay you. So, which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? And he said, He showed mercy on him. And Jesus said to him, Go and do likewise. I think this explains very well what mercy is. Now, we define what mercy is, we read about it, but often these things are better understood when we look at the output or the fruit of mercy. Mercy is often used with or in an aspect of love and compassion, because both true love and compassion are a selfless part of our walk and our life in Christ. And we can only be given with giving these godly intentions when we first are in relationship with Christ. And we see here from the reading, mercy has two parts. The first part of mercy is having a sensitivity or a tender heart towards another person or thing. Nehemiah displayed a tenderness or a sensitive heart when he saw his brethren. Stephen had a tenderness of heart toward his brethren, even as they stoned him, as Pastor Tim read a couple of weeks ago. For they give them, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do, as he was being stoned to death. That's mercy. That's compassion. So mercy starts in the heart, and mercy is supernatural. It's been said many times, I'll say it again, that the heart of the matter is a matter of the heart. Mercy starts in the heart. This is, you know, one of those things that I truly hate to admit, but we're all human beings and 
we are all with fault. When I was first saved, um, we were in a men's Bible study. And a brother had asked, towards the end of the study, hey, does anybody have any prayer requests? And so I, I raised my hand to receive prayer. You see, my prayer request was to have more love and compassion for people. Prior to salvation, I was a guy that uh, didn't have a lot of that. And truly today, I'm still a work in progress. But I pray for more compassion. Because I was one of those people who would see something on the news or read the paper and you know, see something really bad going on and think, man, I'm glad that's not me. Better them than me. Right? That's the kind of heart that I had. And as a new believer, I thought, this, this isn't right. I shouldn't think this. I need to have compassion. I should feel love. I should be driven to my knees to pray over people who are experiencing these things. So I probably would have been more like the Levite, the priest who went the other way. Not every time, but probably most of the time I would have gone the other way just to, or maybe even act like I didn't see it, even though I did. Now I may be the only one here who is like this, but as a new believer, again, I knew it was, it was wrong, but I needed the Lord's help to give me a caring heart in a heart that would desire to take action when something was presented to me. And that's the second part of mercy, is action. We have to take action. We can't sit idly by when something happens, but our actions need to be aligned to the will of God. You know, we see all the time when something tragic happens, what do people do? They take out their smartphones and start recording. We see it all the time. I'm going to put this, I'm going to be the first to put this on my social media page. They're taking action, but it's the wrong kind of action. You know, put the phone down. <laughs> Go and help. Or at least get out of the way. A lot of times you see them, they're standing in the... See, the Lord's still working on certain parts of my... <laughs> Just help. So, with mercy comes responsibility and accountability. Even at an eternal level. See, we, we all one day must give an account for our lives to Jesus. All that we did. All that we didn't do. And that includes the things that we did instead of His will. So this is very serious, and all of us are without excuse. And so what is, what is a simple application of mercy that we can take away for us today? It has to do with what the Lord requires of us. And so, Micah 6.8 says, He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justly. To love mercy and to walk humbly 
with your God. Folks, he's already shown us what's good. We have a responsibility to take those steps of faith as we grow in this and walk humbly with our God. So what's mercy mean? Here's a couple of points to just think about. Mercy means being patient. I'm not a master at being patient. But it means being patient. It means being able to love the unloved. That's a hard one. When we see everything going on in the world today, we know that the Lord loves everybody. Not the sin, but He loves the people. How do we love those that are unloved? How about helping and doing good to those who try to hurt us? That's what mercy is. Forgiveness and giving a second chance or a third or more. Showing compassion in all situations and circumstances. Not an easy thing to do. What about giving when someone tries taking? And there's a list under this that is much, much longer. This is what mercy is. So if mercy is not receiving something that we deserve, that means, that means we can't keep doing whatever it was we receive, what we receive mercy from. Just like grace isn't freedom to continue sinning, we can't continue doing whatever it was we received mercy from. There's no, or I'm sorry, there is an expectation that we no longer participate in that sinful behavior. But this isn't enough of ourselves to be able to do. We have to seek forgiveness from the Lord and the courage and the strength to repent and lay before the Lord all of our iniquities, all of them. All of this then. And we will seek Him to remove those sinful desires from our minds. You know, Paul says we have to, or Peter says we have to gird up the loins of our mind. Romans 12, 1 through 2 says it perfectly. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. See, we deserve judgment and hell for eternity. But his mercy changes that. And his grace is our sufficiency. So to be able to live a life honoring and glorifying our Heavenly Father, Jesus gave us a way for that. He allowed for this. And this brings us to his grace. You know, there's so many stories in the Bible about grace. But there's two in particular that I want to talk about this morning. One's from the Tanakh and one's from the New Testament. The first one, and truly one of my favorite, is a story of a man named Jacob. We all know his story, very familiar to us all. 
But Jacob, to me, seems to be a man that we can really relate to. It doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman. He's a person who lived a normal life, experienced normal things for the most part. There's a lot that we can say about his life, but we're going to zero in on a couple of things here. So looking at Genesis 25, verses 19 through 26. Genesis 25, 19 through 26. This, um, we'll kind of start to read a little bit about how Jacob came about. This is the genealogy of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham begot Isaac. Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah as wife, the daughter of Bethuel, the Syrian of Paddan Aram the sister of Laban, the Syrian. Now Isaac pleaded with the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his plea. And Rebekah, his wife, conceived. But the children struggled together within her. And she said, If all is well, why am I like this? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb. Two people shall be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. So when her days were fulfilled for her to give birth, indeed there were twins in her womb, and the first came out red. He was like a hairy garment all over. So they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out and his hands still hold on Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. <clears throat> so that's how Jacob came about. Esau was the firstborn, and by right should have been given the birthright upon Isaac's passing. We're told that Esau was a skillful hunter, he was a man of the field. This was good with his father. Where Jacob, we're told, was a mild man, dwelling in tents, closer with his mother. So their differences even played a part in the relationships that they had with their parents. Later we know that Jacob swindled Esau into selling him his birthright. We can read in Genesis 27 how Isaac blessed Jacob, and that made Esau so angry he wanted to take his life. So with a little help from his mother, Jacob fled to Rebekah's brothers Laban in Padamaram, which is a region in Haran, modern-day Turkey. You see, Jacob ran from his problems probably hoping that they would not follow him there. But Jacob's life wasn't exactly an easy one, even when he got to his destination. We all know he worked hard. He worked for seven years to receive the hand of Rachel, but when that time came, Laban tricked him and was given Lee. He had to work another seven years, as he promised Laban for Rachel. The irony in that deceit. 
Jacob deceived Esau and his father. Laban deceived him. So many years in livestock and children later, we're not going to get into the children part because, well, you can read in Genesis 29 and 30 just to help remember that it wasn't all roses and butterflies. But he finally left. And really not on the best of terms with Laban. See, Jacob struggled like we all do. He, as we, failed to see or remember the promises of God. We failed to see his grace. And here is where I think we can really see this humanity in Jacob. See, Jacob, no doubt, knew of the covenant given with Abraham, his grandfather. I'm sure he did. I'm sure Isaac told him of the super fun story how he was taken up on a mountain to be sacrificed. Right? That'd be a story I'd want to tell. Because praise the Lord, I wasn't. So Jacob must have known, he must have known, that he was part of that seed. He must have known that. And he must have known that his children were the fruit of that promise. But he didn't seem to live his life that way. Even after some truly extraordinary experience he had on his journey to Haran. Let's read that. Genesis 28. Now Jacob went out from Beersheba and went toward Haran. So he came to a certain place and stayed there all night because the sun had set. And he took one of the stones of that place and put it on his head and he lay down in that place to sleep. Not a very comfy pillow. Then he dreamed and behold, a ladder was set up on the earth and its top reached to heaven. And there were angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and your descendants. Also your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad to the west and to the east, to the north, to the south. And in you and in the seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you. And wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have spoken to you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord has been in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God. And this, this is the gate of heaven. Amazing. Amazing. Jacob had this incredible interaction with God, with the Lord. And he was even reminded of this promise. He had an obvious reaction to it. Later we read that he, he made a vow to the Lord. But Jacob continued in this journey, his life, his struggles, almost forgetting this interaction. I'm not saying that he did, because we're not told that. But he lived his life as if they were void of this entire interaction, because his life doesn't seem to reflect many parts of it as he struggles. But I'm reminded of this of myself. 
And maybe this reminds you of yourself. We know the promises of God, don't we? We hold fast to them. And they're really easy to remind somebody else when they're experiencing something. No, remember what God said. Remember what the Word says. That's truth. But when we're experiencing those same things, it's hard to forget. It's hard to see what's true. It's hard to remember that the Lord has already overcome. It's hard to remember that. And what's interesting about this vow that Jacob has made, it's an actionable item that, placed, that Jacob placed upon the Lord. And how only if these things were fulfilled would Jacob respond in kind. Even though God already said it. Remember, Jacob said, if God will be with me and keep me in this way, I am going. Give me bread to eat, clothing, so that, so that I come back to my father's house in peace. Then the Lord shall be my God. But that's what the Lord told him. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go. will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have spoken to you. Well, which is what? This whole seed, Abraham, the covenant. All your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad the west, the east, the north, the south. And in you and in your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. The Bible tells us that, you know, we're to seek first the kingdom of God, but it doesn't seem that that's what Jacob did. That's for a different day. But the blessing was already underway. It probably didn't feel like it, though, as this blessing was starting to take root and bear fruit as Jacob labored. But it was. Think about our, our life as husbands, wives, parents, grandparents, great-grandparents. We have walked some very painful and scary times, haven't we? Do we all remember the first time we see our child or our grandchild sick with a super high fever? Nothing seems to help. That scary and hopeless feeling that we have. Or a wife, a husband standing by your spouse as they battle a horrible disease like cancer or something else. The pain and the suffering that takes place with no end in sight. It's hard. It's hard to see clear when we're in the middle of those things. We don't see a God's promise. We don't see grace. Many times we see the pain and we're dealing with the pain and the suffering. So Jacob moves forward with marriage, children, more children. But man, that seems like a lot of work. Work most of the time. Working at home, laboring in the field. Doesn't feel like a promise being fulfilled. But it is for us, and it was for Jacob. Because we can see God's grace in this. Because Jacob didn't deserve any of it. Jacob didn't do anything to deserve 
this beautiful promise that God gave him. But God keeps his promises. The family, his wives, the children. We see God beginning to fulfill his promise. There was grace in the livestock and all that journeyed with him when he, when he finally left to go back home. There was more grace to be had when Jacob does return to his father's land. And not only is he not met with hostility from a brother out for vengeance, remember when, when Esau was seen coming, they had camped, Jacob had camped outside of the area. There were 400 men with Esau. So Jacob starts dividing his kids, the wives, you go here, you're here. He didn't know what was going to happen. He was, he was afraid. But remember, God had already said, I'm going to return you home. And then we see in chapter four, or verse 4 of chapter 33, But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him, fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. Such a beautiful picture of grace. Even more grace before the meeting with Esau when Jacob at night wrestled with God. You know, Jacob struggled much throughout his life. You know, he struggled with his brother even in the womb, at birth, in life, struggled with his father, his uncle, and now he struggles with God. And he arose at night, took his two wives, his two female servants, the eleven sons, crossed over the, the ford to Jabbok, took them, sent them over the brook, and sent over what he had. Then Jacob was left alone. And a man, capital M, wrestled with him until the breaking of day. Now when he saw that he did not prevail against him, he touched the socket of his hip, and the socket of Jacob's hip was out of joint as he wrestled with him. And he said, let me go for the day break. But he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? He said, Jacob. And he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have struggled with God, with men, and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked, saying, Then tell me your name, I pray. And he said, Why is that that you ask about my name? And he blessed him there. See, Jacob had no way of winning that wrestling match. It was God's grace that he touched his hip. He can't fight anymore. He was in no position to bargain with, the, with God. Not that he was ever before that, but he was physically not able to continue. And there is so much grace in that. The Lord putting us in a place where striving is useless. It always is. But we have to be put in our place before we see it for what it is. And it's a complete and total reliance on the Lord that becomes realized in this. And at the end of the struggle, the Lord blesses Jacob, changes his name to Israel. From Israel, we have the 12 tribes that are born, and today, Israel is a nation, and thriving as a nation. And that's all by the grace of God. We're getting close to 
closing things out today. Um, but I don't want to leave without first talking about this, this New Testament account of grace. You know, looking at grace, um, probably the greatest example of this, it really starts all the way back in the garden when sin was first committed. Ever since that time, all have been born into sin and all have an inclination to sin. It comes very easy and natural for us to sin. While some has learned, much comes from just living our lives. This is extremely obvious when we look at the news today, and even within ourselves, because we're just sinners saved by grace. You see, God, we're told, in one of the most beautiful and well-known verses, loved the world so much that he gave his only begotten son. God gave a gift we don't deserve, an eternal gift of grace. In fact, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but of everlasting life. Verse 17 follows it up with, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. You know, we can never earn our way to heaven. We can't wake up some morning, some super spiritual day, and gain through some sort of work that we are doing for the Lord or some closeness we feel like we have with God. It doesn't work that way. Because the only thing that we add is the sin that requires a Savior. We can be really good church attenders. I go to three out of four Sunday services. I go to the Wednesday services. My parents drag me to church. My grandparents drag me to church. We hear it all the time. We ask people, are you saved? Oh, yeah, yeah, I've been going to church a long time. I've even served in the children's ministry for like 15 years. Grueling children's ministry. For some reason, children's ministry always gets the the bad rap. It's actually a great place to serve. You may ask, Trevor, do you serve there? Oh, no. (laughs) But we, you know, never mind all of the the going to church and the this and the that, and I serve and I do that. There's verses that even talk about that, some of the scariest verses in the Bible. Ask this. Are you saved by the blood of the Lamb? Are you saved by His grace? Because we're saved by grace through faith. Remember, Ephesians, we just read it. We're going to read it again with a little bit more. Because he says, But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come, he might... Show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. And here it is again, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of ourselves, it is a gift of God, 
not of works, lest anyone should boast. Grace. Salvation in Jesus Christ. A gift from God. His grace. A gift we don't deserve. Remember what we said initially, what we deserve is judgment in everlasting hell. But if Christ is our Savior, and remember, only Christ can do this. No other God, no other idol, no other anything, because Christ died a death that we deserved and rose again. His mercy poured out that day. And when we believe by faith in Him, we are welcomed into the household of God. Salvation by grace. I can't think of any greater gift. The gift of grace paid by the only one not deserving of the punishment that came at the ultimate sacrifice and display of love. Redeemed by our Savior, Jesus Christ. The verse, for he had made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Such a beautiful gift. As we close, the worship team comes up to close us out in worship. We can ask, what does any of this have to do that we talked about? Have to do with Thanksgiving. Eating turkey, stuffing, napping, waking up for seconds. <clears throat> eating too much dessert and then blaming all the uncomfortableness on our pants that are too tight. Just remember, they fit when you started the day. But what does all this have to do that we're talking about with the Thanksgiving holiday? And the answer is, is really nothing. But the Thanksgiving holiday shouldn't be about the traditional things that we think about. It should be a time mostly that we stop and reflect on the things that are truly that we're truly thankful for. Isn't the mercy of God not receiving something we deserve and the grace of God receiving something we don't deserve and ultimately salvation instead of judgment? Isn't being found and no longer lost? Being filled with the peace of God instead of struggling and dead and dying in our sins? Isn't being freed and no longer in bondage? Having his hope and his joy and having this eternal relationship with our Savior without end? Isn't having the Lord's grace being our sufficiency? Isn't having a love from a Heavenly Father that never fades, never falters, a sacrifice from our Savior that we can never comprehend, a love from our Heavenly Father that only grows as time goes on. Because these are the things that we can be thankful for. Yes, we should be thankful for the friends and the family and the provision and the time together in fellowship because these are blessings from the Lord. But God and his sacrifice for us, this is what should fill our hearts with an overwhelming sense of thanksgiving. And this is what we can rejoice over and share with our friends and our family in the coming days. 
as we gather together. Amen.